This is Collective Voices, where each week we look at one issue facing the Cape Fear region and how it is interconnected, requiring a comprehensive solution. I'm Kevin Maurer, Director of Community Engagement for the Cape Fear Collective. In our first season, we're talking about problems facing the Cape Fear region and highlighting some of the frontline organizations addressing them. The goal is to come up with a common language so we can unite and find solutions. On this episode, we're talking about housing. Shelter ranks right at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but in Wilmington, like in many places in the nation, finding affordable housing is difficult, if not impossible. Housing is considered affordable when it doesn't exceed more than 30% of household income. Families that spend more are considered cost burden. 32% of households in New York County are cost burden. So in this episode, we'll start with a conversation with Rachel LeCoe. She's a workforce housing planner for New Hanover County. We talk about the state of affordable housing and some of the things the county's doing to address the issue, including a comprehensive study due later this year. Then we'll talk with Steve Spain, Executive Director of Cape Fear Habitat for Humanity. Habitat works with families and individuals in need of an affordable place to live. The Cape Fear chapter was founded in 1987 and built their first house in 1989. Steve talks about the need for a housing bond, the cost of money, and why Wilmington needs to build vertically. And finally, we'll talk to Katrina Redmond. She's the executive officer of the Wilmington Housing Authority. She talks about the Housing Choice Voucher Program, the Housing Authority's mission, and the resilience and entrepreneurship she sees in the public housing community daily. A quick note, we don't tackle homelessness in this issue. We plan to address it later and give it the attention it deserves. Okay, so we're sitting here at the New Hanover County uh, Government Center with Rachel LeCoe, Workforce Housing Planner for New Hanover County. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for coming. So let's start at the beginning with how do you define workforce or affordable housing exactly? What exactly is it? I think people get a sense of it, but what do you when you when somebody says we need affordable housing, what do you think? Yeah, I, that can definitely be a tricky question. So if you want to go by the HUD Housing and Urban Development definition, it's when you are spending more than 30% of your income on housing every month. And that's usually focused on people who are earning less than 80% of the area median income. Now, other people will say that affordable housing is for everyone, no matter what your income is. You shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your income, whether you're making 100,000 or 50,000 or 10,000. Um, there's obviously a big difference in what you can afford at those levels. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's really important to not just think about it in terms of affordable housing, but attainable housing. And so what's attainable for someone? Is it a rental? Is it a home ownership? There's so many questions that come up when you think about affordable housing. And so we need to look at solutions for all of those people and all of those price points and incomes. And so there's a lot of solutions to be had. It's also an issue I think that touches, I think you're touching upon it, where it touches not just certain communities. I think it touches all communities, right? I mean, it's not it's not regulated to certain areas. Exactly. And but when you have if you're earning one thousand dollars a month and you can only spend three hundred dollars a month on housing that's very different than if you're earning ten thousand dollars a month and have three thousand dollars a month to spend in housing so yes affordable housing that 30 percent of your income comes into play but when you have a low income or moderate income and what you have left over every month is what comes down to over there so what you can spend on your health care your um, medical bills, your childcare, your entertainment, you know, how do yeah. you give back to the local economy? How do you spend your money? So it factors into all those places. 
What's what's the state of affordable housing in New Hampshire County? I mean, I've lived here since 2008, and I feel like only lately it's become a, a, a big issue, or it's become something I've heard talked about a lot. Yeah, I think it's because it's become a national issue. Uh, we are currently... Uh, the North Carolina Housing Coalition does a report every year. We have the 2019 information. 2020 should be released soon. But, you know, they say that 32% of New Hanover County is cost burden. And again, that goes back to that 30%. So 32% of New Hanover County is spending more than 30% of their income on housing. That includes renters and homeowners. There's obviously a lot more renters that are housing cost burden than um, homeowners, but the numbers are still there. So yes, that is a good amount of people. Let's stop for a second and unpack this idea of cost burden. Take a two-bedroom apartment in New Hampshire County. To afford one, a family needs to earn about $39,720 a year. On average, renters in New Hanover County can only afford $664 a month in rent, but two-bedroom apartments around here go for 1000 or more. That's double what the average renter can afford. Yeah, how do we get here then? I mean, how do you how do you think we got to, to the point where thirty two percent of our neighbors are cost burden? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, we are we look at it all the time. Is it it's one of those chicken the eggs? Is it because supply? Is it because of wages? Is it what is it? Um, and there's no one answer, I don't think. Um, yeah. So that's why there's never one solution. So how we are surrounded by water, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're limited in where we can build. We have a great build out. We have only in the city, you know, I, for, I can't remember the number of how many percent it's built out. But right now you, they have to start rethinking how they're developing. Infill lot development is going to become huge. That missing middle that we talk about, different housing types. We can't just build single family homes and fill the supply. So is it a supply issue? Partly. Is it a wage issue? Partly. Where do we go from there? Great question. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's something we've been talking about all season too, about how, I mean, not, there isn't you can't solve one problem no no problems in a vacuum right so you can't you can if you just solve food insecurity you'd still have all the, the problems that are around food insecurity mm-hmm. and i think this one is a great example too of you can't it's not a supply if you solve the supply you've got a ton of apartments but are they priced where you can actually buy them so is that a wage problem is it a supply problem and it's not easy yeah i mean the how do we build more homes for less money construction costs are high whether it's tariffs, whether it's labor, whether, you know, all the factors that come into land, that's a huge one, obviously, like we mentioned. Uh, But then we look at what already exists in here. And so how do we preserve, they call it naturally occurring affordable housing, NOAA. It's a different, it's a new term. Well, probably not new, but. uh, So how do we preserve these houses, particularly in low-income areas where there have been generations who grew up there and you know inherited the home and you have these we we always talk about air properties um where you know the grandmother left the house to their grandchildren and one person's living there but they can't they have you know 15 other people on the on the mortgage or on the deed and they can get a loan to make repairs because everyone else has to sign off on you know, some of these loans when we do some of the programs, even with the city of Wilmington with their rehabilitation program. So you struggle with that. So how do we preserve these homes that exist that are naturally occurring and ensure that we don't get into gentrification or, you know, but 
it's a balancing act. How do you improve the neighborhood without over-improving and forcing people out? So um, there's that. Um, Then even developer, you know, we love to talk about development and uh, people will say those greedy developers, they just want to make a profit. But when you look at their margins, if you look at their performance, they're cutting it close. And so how do... Is there any way to incentivize, you know, building a one-bedroom apartment? Because that's what people need. That's what we hear all the time, that there are folks who just want a one-bedroom apartment, but they can't afford it because it costs too much to build it. So is there a way to incentivize that? Is that our job at the in the government? Is it who's responsible for that? Right. Um, and, in, you know, just in general, regulatory barriers. That's, that's a big hot topic right now is from the coming down from the federal government is that there's too many local regulatory barriers that are preventing affordable housing from being built. So just taking a look at all this. So we are in the middle of reviewing proposals for a comprehensive housing study that should help us answer a lot of these questions. Do you think, you know, I've heard a lot about, I've heard some some folks talk about affordable housing crisis, mm-hmm. you know, do you, do you think, I know, I know you're starting to search and you think in the fall, these reports will come back and you'll get to get your arms around sort of the, the data, but do you feel like there's a crisis here? Do, do you get that sense or? It's, it's interesting when you, after the hurricane, when people were looking for apartments, uh, whether short term or, you know, long term. I remember there was a, a woman who they had lived in their house. They rented their house for 15 years. They had lived in a rental. And when they went to go find an apartment, it was going to be $3,000 a month just for six months while they did their repairs. That same apartment I rented the year before short term for $1,200 a month. So, yeah, and that's just, that's just a short term, and that obviously was after the hurricane. But you hear about that kind of issue all the time, you know, how rents are increasing and um, the housing market and um, what's the supply, you know, it's a, it's a, what, a three month supply right now and you can't find anything for, barely anything for under 200 that you can move into that doesn't need a major renovation. So, you know, we're limited. So um, if you talk to homeless providers, they're going to say, yes, there's a crisis. If you talk to renters they're going to say some people are going to say yes there's a crisis people who are trying to buy a home yes so it's going to depend on who you ask it's crazy too because i think and you hinted at this earlier too not only you know is there a crisis with the supply but also there's nowhere else to go like you said we're surrounded by water like there's there's only so much land you can develop into into what you need and and so that's one thing that we're looking at with the the housing study is what do we want to be built Mm -hmm. what do we need to be built i'm sorry because we, that's another you know, new topic that people talk about is that missing middle housing. So you have the single family and you have the multiplexes. Well, what about duplexes or dual units? Uh, what, do we, what about a triplex, a quad? How do we make more, uh, how do we use our land more efficiently? And right. so that's something that we need to think about. And is that what people want? Yeah, who's like, because I, I know right near my neighborhood, they're, they're building duplexes. Mm-hmm. And we looked at them and I just wonder, I mean, do people want to live in duplexes? I think it's an interesting question is you could build all the housing, but do people really want to live in it? I mean, I lived in a duplex for eight years <laughs> and it was fine. I mean, yeah. we, we lived it, we loved it. And that's, that was where we were in life. I mean, people love, 
people, when you talk about apartments, for some, it, it triggers them. But when you think about, did you ever live in an apartment? I have. Yeah, I have to. Yeah. It's and not bad. No, it's not bad. And I'm not bad. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Wrightsboro, you guys are, are, are eyeballing that for, for some development for some of workforce housing, right? Right. So the county has this really awesome uh, property conveyance program mm-hmm. where we have some land uh, that maybe it was... Uh, earmarked for a park that didn't work out. Maybe it was an old Cape Fear Public Utility Authority property that um, as we transitioned away from sewers and septic, away from septic, sorry, um, we are transitioning into, you know, new needs, different needs. And so we have some land. And so we are in the process of donating it to um, nonprofits that are focused on workforce housing. And so we have this site over in Wrightsboro and it's um, it's going to it's about 14 acres um, maybe about six are developable because of a creek running through it mm-hmm. um, and so it's up for um, property conveyance in it's going to go to Cape Fear Habitat for Humanity to develop a nice little subdivision there okay Wow. They're going to extend the water and sewer line, so because right now it's currently it would have to be on septic, but they're able to bring the line down at their expense and develop this property. And, then, and this property would be earmarked for for workforce housing, right? Right. So workforce housing is any it's for people earning under one hundred twenty percent of the area median income. Habitat for Humanity uh, they focus under eighty percent typically, so it still falls into that workforce. Uh, housing type and when you when we say workforce housing who are we talking about it can be anyone it can be your teachers it could be uh it could be nurse firefighter it could be someone on social security it could be someone on you know it doesn't have to be someone necessarily going to work every day but they all contribute to our uh, community and then um the county and city have teamed up on, the, on a workforce housing committee, correct? Right. So, the yes, the, we have a workforce housing advisory committee that was put in place by city council and the uh, board of commissioners. And right now that is part, that's who is uh, leading the charge for this comprehensive housing study. So the, they have been tasked with doing this comprehensive work, work for, comprehensive housing studies. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> exactly. Um, and they are also we're also doing a public opinion survey Um, and then after we have the results hopefully in the fall we're going to look at a public awareness campaign and a work plan um, that comes out of this study so this is this is this safe to say this is one of your first big deep dives into this issue to get to really get some good data that that will kind of inform next measures there have been efforts for many years, uh, but this is the first time that we were able to really come together to do this. There was an ad hoc committee that was formed uh, in 2015 that looked at the issues. They brought in subject matter experts from here and from other communities to really dive deep into Mm -hmm. defining um, housing, affordable housing, looking at the problems, looking at the solutions, uh, and then they made recommendations. Out of those recommendations came this permanent advisory committee. Prior to that, there's been a lot of conversations, um, and I think that's true nationally. I don't think that's just locally. Um, I think 
over the past few years, it's just become more obvious. We are not, thankfully, at this place where, you know, Los Angeles or a lot of places in California are with their housing crisis. And so we we still have time to catch up and make some changes before it becomes a real major crisis. So we'll circle back to Rachel later this year when the report's ready. Now, we're gonna talk to Steve Spain from Habitat for Humanity. All right, here we go. So (laughs) we're here at Steve Spain, Executive Director uh, with Cape Fear Habitat for Humanity, the Harrelson Center. You guys got the good office on the first floor, not the wall. That's right, we were original tenants. Nice. Uh, So we're talking this, this week about affordable housing. So uh, really my first question is the same question I've been asking everybody. Sort of from the, in the eyes of the Cape Fear uh, Habitat for Humanity, what is affordable housing to you guys? Well, sort of in the broadest sense, affordable housing, you know, goes up and down the income chain. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, housing that you can afford on what you make. Um, and that's, you know, we generally define that as 30% of your income. Uh, and that's what HUD uses as the definition of what's affordable. Of course, yeah, that's a very imperfect measure because if I make $100,000 a year and I spend 30000 a year on housing, uh, that's affordable. And I have $70,000 left for food, clothing, utilities, everything else I might have. If I make 30000 a year and I spend 9000 a year on housing, also now equally affordable because it's 30% of my income, I've got 21000 left for all those same things. Yeah. And that's a huge difference. So we try, when we work with uh, our homeowners, the lower the income of the homeowner, we want that percentage to go as low as possible too. Mm-hmm. Because if you just push it to 30%, somebody who's only making you know, thirty to 35000 a year is going to have a really hard time. What's sort of interesting about this this issue is that it does span. It's not just you know centered around one one economic level. Absolutely, it's yeah. everybody. Yeah, it's. Oh. I mean, right? You'll hear a lot of people. One of the distinctions people make, and I guess it's important to look at things in these sort of slices. But they'll talk about workforce housing as mm-hmm. distinct from affordable. And workforce housing is you know, for people earning between 60 and 120% of the average annual median income for, uh, for the county. And, and so that we work with people from 30 to 60% um, uh, Habitat does. And that's, I think, what you'll find other, most other housing agencies that are supporting People don't go above uh, 80. I'm sorry, I said 30 to 60. We work 30 to 80. Okay. Um, and, yeah, so, yeah, the needs are really different depending on, on where you are in it. But it's as big a problem for this community that there isn't affordable housing for people earning forty to $60,000 a year as it is for 20 to 40. Right. You know, that these are workers who... Business, the businesses we want to work here, especially high tech, um, uh, you know, low environmental impact businesses, uh, they need their workers to be able to find housing, and it's just not there. Uh, What's the median income? What do you guys consider the median income here? Well, right now for New Hanover County, for a family of four, I think 
that 2020 is in the 67,000 a year is the median. Um, so we work with people at 30 to 60, you know, right. 30 to 80. Stop saying that. We used to be thirty to sixty. Right. That's why I'm stuck. Um, but yeah, and that and that's that's actually a good part of the symptom that we've had to go to eighty because it takes that for people to be able to afford the even the relatively modest houses that we build right. um, as their valuations keep going up. Um, two years ago, our basic three bedroom, two bath house. Uh, was appraising at about, yeah, it depended on the area, but between 130 and 140,000. And we're now sort of regardless of where we build, it's up over 170. Um, wow, okay. And that has a real impact on affordability uh, because we're required to sell our homes at appraised value you know, in order to be clear that we're not favoring one person or you know, over another. Um, now, we do sometimes subsidize that if somebody's income isn't going to make it. When we get surprised right. by the appraisals, that'll happen. When we know that it's going this way, it just means that we have to not serve people at lower incomes because we know there's going to be a problem when right. it comes time to sell the house. So what, what's sort of the state of affordable housing right now in your, when it comes to, especially because you guys are kind of, a, kind of a niche here and then you build these houses. Right. You know? Well, I, yeah, I, the hurricane had a really big impact more in uh, uncovering how bad things were. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there was a direct impact. There were several thousand affordable apartment units were lost. Um, by my reckoning, about half of them are coming back. The other half we'll never see again. And, you know, to lose a thousand units of affordable housing in a city this size is just huge. Um, so we're going to be making that deficit up for a long time. But even before Florence, there was this deficit of housing. Um, and, you know, you could see it again and how difficult it was to uh, keep UNCW graduates here. Uh, because jobs didn't pay what mm-hmm. it takes to afford to live here. Um, you can see it in uh, you know, City of Wilmington, uh, fire, police, um, and other services have to live in Brunswick County or Pender County uh, and commute in. And and that's one of the things we don't talk about enough, and, and I know is a yeah. big interest yeah. um, you know, for... Uh, for you guys is how does all this fit together? And this lack of affordable housing where the jobs are means that our traffic problems are way worse. Yeah. Um, you know, the way I like to look at it is the, the last estimates I saw for a bridge over the Cape Fear, another bridge to handle the channel, the increasing traffic was about a billion dollars. Well, we build a house for about a hundred thousand so what about building 10,000 affordable houses this side of the river for that billion dollars? And then you don't need it. Uh, I mean, that's a very simplistic way to look at it. And I know it doesn't trade. And t- the day that Department of Transportation gives us a billion dollars to build houses will be a happy one indeed. Um, but it just gives you that perspective that we're choosing to address the issue as an infrastru- as a road and bridge infrastructure problem instead of really being a mismatch of jobs and housing. Because the other side to that 
which my friends in the Chamber of Commerce don't want me to talk about, <laughs> is more jobs in Brunswick and Pender right. County is the other way to address that so that they, you know, so that there are jobs in places where it's more affordable to live. I mean, I think that's that's a good point. It, it, all these pro these programs are interconnected. Like, you can't solve food insecurity, right? You, if if you could just say, all right, we're f we, there's no one that's food insecure in Wilmington, they'd still have a, a bunch of other problems. Like, none of those problems are isolated. They're not in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, are we at a crisis level? Do you think at, at affordable housing yet, or do we do we have a chance to sort of fix it? We're nearing a crisis level. I I, I don't think we've hit the tipping point yet where we can't fix it. Um, but it's drawing close. I mean, one of, one of the thing, one of the great advantages Wilmington has over, you know, for example, because they're you know, a popular local whipping boy city, uh, Myrtle Beach, right. <laughs> where you know, they basically have to bus workers in because you know, there is no affordable housing, is that we have historic affordable housing here in Wilmington. You know, large parts of the city of Wilmington are affordable housing. Quality of that housing is declining as the homeowners are older, they lack the funds, or sometimes the ability to go to a bank you know, and get loans in order to maintain the houses. And right now, it's more on a case by case basis that you see houses falling into disrepair, getting uh, code violations that create fines that mount up that eventually lead to you know, foreclosure by the city or the county or both. Um, and then that decrepit house is taken down, there's a lot, and it gets rebuilt. Very rarely will that be built to support someone who is at the income level of the people who used to live there. And as I say, right now that happens, it's here, it's there, it's individual houses. But we're nearing a tipping point where really hundreds of houses like that are going to tip over that edge. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that go into it. There's heirs properties. So we, we were talking about, um, when I lost the batteries, right. um, we were talking about a, the heirs properties. So yeah. what happens is, you know, uh, you know the, the, the owner dies, the, the, the house is willed to, to their heirs, and this takes so long to probate to get out of court that sometimes it's just or, mushrooms, right? Most often, there's not a will. Okay. Or if there is a will, the heirs don't go to court because of the... They're modest, but not in, not in substantial fees involved with doing it. Right. So maybe people just don't do it. And so the property remains owned by this sort of mysterious heirs of. Um, and so that leaves, even if the child of the person who died, one of the children, lives there, pays the ta paying taxes doesn't give you any greater right over the house than any other heir, for example. People don't right. realize that, that the child who stays in the house pays the taxes, keeps the house up. Um, if they then want to borrow money or sell that house in order to get clear title, you can't get clear title from heirs of. It has to you know, be established by the court who owns it. That person who's lived there and paid taxes maybe for years, they don't get to choose to sell it. Every possible heir of the owner of record 
has an equal share. And, you know, in the normal way yeah. of if there were four children, the one who lived there and has paid the taxes the last 10 years has one fourth share. And so what can happen is the whole thing falls into disrepair because they can't get a loan on the house, even though it may be completely paid for. Right. Um, but they can't get a loan to fix the roof um, because to do that, they have to establish for the bank that they're the owner, which they can't do without going through a court process that involves notification of all the other possible heirs Right. And gives them the chance to challenge, you know, who's the owner of it. And so it's it's pretty complex, but it's something that I think in Wilmington, there are enough cases like this. If you just go through the county records and see how many properties are owned by heirs, um, that it would be really worthwhile as a legal project to try and figure out how to go to court with people who are living in heirs' properties to get established a right to sell and borrow against that property. Otherwise, we're just, that's why I say, I think we're nearing a tipping point on those properties where they're just going to fall into disrepair. And then all that can happen after that really is gentrification. Um, And, and and that, you know, I'm not saying gentrification is automatically bad, um, but. No, but when it raises that, that, when it closes that, that gap for affordable housing, that's exactly. when it becomes a problem. Or when it's changing the fa- I mean, the north side, I mean, the north side is getting, it's, it's a facelift. It's changing the whole demographics of that, that part of town. Right. And, that's, and that can be a good thing if we find a way to make room for the people mm-hmm. who've always lived there. And that brings us sort of to, you know, another uh, controversial topic, which is density. Because yeah. how do you keep affordable housing for people in Wilmington neighborhoods while also meeting the demand for more housing uh, for people at all income levels. And you know, the answer to that is density. Right. Uh, Wilmington is cut up. I mean, the most common lot size in the city of Wilmington is 33 feet wide by either 133 or 166 feet long. And that's why you see the shot, shotgun houses. Right. Is they're very narrow, long lots, often with an alley, you know, in between. Um, but that doesn't lend itself to anything but vertical. Right. Uh, if you want to increase density, um, you know, so we have to sort of you know suck it up. And uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Boston where the triple decker is king, mm-hmm. um, and I can't help but think sometimes that we need to figure out a triple-decker shotgun, (laughs) you know, sort of house, because that's what triple-deckers are. I lived in an apartment that Mm -hmm. was a room and a half wide and six rooms long, you know, uh, in the house. And, you know, I was perfectly able as a, a young person to walk the three stories up to be on the top one. There was an elderly couple who lived on the ground floor. Right. You know, which was good for them. And uh, I guess your less fit or more lazy people can be, <laughs> be on the second floor. Right. You know, but um, we need to find ways to you know, do more with the space we have. And that's what I, and, and I mean, you see that happening, for example, in the Brooklyn Arts yeah. District on North 4th Street, where a they usually go two lots wide because you got to get that 
at least 66 feet to really be able to do much. But then they'll build eight units. Mm-hmm. So in a way, we've, we've won a battle there where what used to house you know, two families can now house eight. The problem is it's a different eight families. And so is there a way for us to figure out how to accommodate you know, two families who have always lived in that neighborhood right. with six you know, new families? And, and it's tricky. I mean, you, it's hard to build eight units, two of which are affordable to someone earning you know, 30000 a year or maybe just on Social Security. You know, getting yeah, which is the case with a lot of the these houses that I feel are at the tipping point, mm-hmm. is you have elderly people, couples or singles who are on social security, and yet you know, that's all they've got. And with unclear title, their houses are just going to fall apart. I think we all know the basics, but here's how Habitat works. Habitat for Humanity builds a single-family home for anyone who earns between thirty to eighty percent of the area median household income. The houses are purchased by the families through an affordable mortgage with Cape Fear Habitat for Humanity. To be eligible, there needs to be a demonstrated need, like being displaced by Hurricane Florence, housing expenses greater than 30% of your income, or an inability to get a home loan. In addition, every Habitat homeowner must invest some sweat equity. Basically, you got to help build the house. So what kind of things are you guys doing at Habitat (laughs) to try to address some of this? Complaining loudly, no. Uh, <laughs> we all do that, but no. Uh, you know, at Habitat, we're trying to find different. Uh, we're trying to expand the models that we use for housing. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, we basically have a three-bedroom, two-bath, single-family home, and you know, if you had a larger family, we'd add a bedroom uh, or two. We had a few plans, but that's what we went with. We've never tried to rezone property because that gets into a NIMBY and can get really nasty. Um, So that's limited us to finding lots that are appropriate for single family houses of that size. So we're trying to branch out in terms of where we build and also uh, what we build. So in the last a uh, year or so, we've started to work in more northern parts of New Hanover County, outside the city of Wilmington. Um, we're building more in Pender and in Duplin counties. Uh, those are mostly still our basic single-family house with the picket fence, you know, the, the yard you get to mow. Um, right. Like, that's a privilege. <laughs> um, and But we're also... Um, in the wake of Hurricane Florence, we ran into the rural version of what we were just talking about with the, not so much the heirs property, but an elderly couple or single who were living often in a trailer that was in bad shape before the storm, unlivable after the storm. And so we were looking at those, and we have a lot of resources because you know people, individuals, and governments have been generous in trying to you know, address uh, displacement from the hurricane. And so we're trying to figure out what to do. You know, we're looking at things where there would be forty dollars or $50,000 worth of repairs needed on a unit that was going to be worth ten or 15000 when we right. were done putting that in. And that doesn't make any sense. Um, so we were trying to, you know, we, we cast about for a way out of this. And what we've come up with is what 
we're calling efficiency cottages. They are not tiny houses. They're uh, between six and 800 square feet, so they are small houses. They're mm. smaller than what we would traditionally build. Um, our three-bedroom, two-bath house is around 1,200 square feet. And, but we can do that in the rural areas where someone already has a well and septic hookup. We can get that done for about $40,000. And why repair... So why spend $40,000 right. to repair a substandard housing unit mm -hmm. so that it can become substandard again? Uh, won't even need another hurricane, just regular rain and sun. Right. Uh, when we can go and build a energy efficient, you know, stick built house. Um, now the challenge for us has been when we do that, that the homeowner generally has no money beyond in some cases, even the taxes and insurance uh, is going to burden, cost burden them for the housing. And, um, and especially because if we're going to do this, we do require folks to have insurance. Because, right. you know, we're, we don't want that input to be lost. Um, so we've, we're just starting our first round of these. We've had people signed up uh, to do it, to trade in their, in some cases, up to 2,000 square feet of you know, multiple trailers that were sort of jerry-rigged together. Um, and again, they're, they're, in that case, it's an elderly couple, uh, and, and they're thrilled at moving down. You know, where where is this going to be? Where are you doing this? Pender and Duplin okay. counties. Uh, right, the first one, one of each. The first two that we're building is one in Pender and one in Duplin. Warsaw in Duplin and... Uh, off 210 uh, in, in Pender. Uh, so that's an entirely new product for us. We're going to build it really fast and differently than the lumber company um, that we work with will actually uh, rough the whole house in for us. So instead of our trip, we'll do a slab. Yeah. We call them up. Next time we have to deal with it, the walls and roof are up, and we're just going to do the siding, do the inside, you know, do all the wallboard and flooring, countertops and cabinets so that we can get these done in four to six weeks instead of our normal, you know, 12 to 16 weeks to build a house. And in most cases, we're probably not going to get the, we'll never, we won't in any of them get a substantial payment from the homeowner because they can't afford it. But we will get some modest payment from them because that's part of Habitat's ethos. We don't you know, give anything away. Um, but we think it's such a benefit to the community that you know, whatever happens, there's now a stick-built house that's energy efficient, resilient you know, to wind and rain, right. um, where there used to be a substandard you know, a trailer. So, do you think you could take that model though and bring it to say over to this side of the river and make like a small community of these houses? Well, and that's Another thing that we're looking at is whether to use um, the city of Wilmington has a cottage housing zoning. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're interested in looking at whether we can use that. It's a play, <clears throat> and this, this will be, uh, since we can editorialize in parentheses in this, um, not being live, uh, this might be a good segue into your equity, et cetera. Right. Um, one of the... Uh, 
conflicts for us. And one of the reasons that we went to, even if it's a single person, we built a three-bedroom, two-bath house with the exception of these hurricane repairs. And one of the reasons for that is we're not just about affordable housing, but also about building wealth in traditionally under-resourced communities. Um, and so we want a product that is going to retain its value and hopefully go up in value mm-hmm. um, so that the equity that people earn as they pay their mortgage to us every month you know, becomes a savings account as it is for middle-class people everywhere. I mean, most middle-class Americans' wealth is in their house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we just want to expand that to people who haven't had that opportunity, you know, in the bad old days. And let's not kid ourselves, they're, they're still around in many ways. That was redlining, you know, regardless of whether you could afford it or not. Mm-hmm. If you weren't the right uh, race or you didn't live in the right neighborhood, uh, banks weren't interested. Now, there's a lot less of that, you know, kind of blatant redlining going on, but people still lose out because their income simply isn't enough. I mean, and you may qualify in every way, and a bank will say, well, great, we'd be happy to loan you money. We can loan you $60,000. Well, look around for what yeah. you can buy for $60,000 here in uh, Wilmington. So, uh Anyway, so that is some of the tension that exists when we sort of go to a smaller product in a different way, like the cottage housing, that we're likely to build less wealth. The advantage is it's more affordable with a lower monthly payment uh, for people. But the resale on anything less than a three-bedroom, two-bath house, there's a big drop on the values in in this market at least and i think that's fairly universal in urban areas that people want that size um so so that's so so but we are still looking at it but that's one of the tensions we want to deal with and that also comes up when we talk about the other direction that we're going we're working with uh clark hip and the uh and the uh want to say want to say land bank um, and that's not what I mean the uh, land trust uh-huh. uh, on the project on Castle Street the old wave buildings and there um, what we plan are our condos you know two bedroom uh, and maybe some three bedroom uh, condos that will be habitat that will treat as our regular houses and that'll be a very different product uh-huh. um, I I don't have a problem with it. I think it's great. I think we just, it, it'll be a different customer, I think, right. who doesn't want that picket fence and the yard for the kids to play in. Um, and so we'll just have to educate the public more that this is an option. Uh, I think, uh, especially for a lot of young, uh, single or coupled people not planning children anytime soon, right. but getting tired of pouring a thousand or more dollars a month, you know, in rent down the drain, if they can uh, instead build some modest equity to build up to go buy another home. Uh, we think it, 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 that's the future. And we have to find a way to build up right. in Wilmington. And so the habitat model of a single family home with a yard, there's just no future for it in Wilmington. So 
we're looking at these other options. You're a member of the Workforce Housing Committee, right? Yes. Tell me about, um, as you guys look at solutions, I mean, where are some of the solutions that you guys are thinking? Or I know that you guys have a big report coming in the fall, but right. it, like, sort of where's your head right now on, on some of the solutions? And, and do you think there's, there's, a, there's room for a housing bond or anything like that? Well, I don't want to speak on behalf of the task no, no, force, uh -huh. but just as, as someone interested in the issues who, who is on there. I think a lot of people are interested in a housing bond. Um, you know, naturally, you look and see what's worked for other communities with similar problems. And communities all over North Carolina have taken advantage of the housing, of housing bonds as a way to raise money to uh, support affordable housing initiatives. And it takes a different form. It's whatever each community needs. That's what's great about it is it's uh, what uh, it's like a block grant because right. you know, there's your block of money. Uh -huh. And instead of you fitting a project to a HUD program that has very specific requirements, there's this block of money in the housing trust that can be used for whatever that community prioritizes. So, yeah, I'm a huge booster of the Housing Trust. I think we have to have it. Um, you know, I don't... One of the things that has really struck me uh, in the seven years I've, I've been with Habitat and, you know, sort of at first, you know, it was a little feather across the face, and now it's a sledgehammer on the top of my head, is that the difference between housing that's affordable and market rate housing is almost exactly equal to the cost of money. When you take, if you look at a 30-year mortgage mm -hmm. at, if you had such great credit that you could get 4%, if you buy a hundred, if you have a $150,000 mortgage, it costs you a little over 300000 over the course of the 30 years, more than double. Well, Habitat, we offer zero interest mortgages, so our people pay 150. That's the difference between our affordable housing payment and an unaffordable housing payment Traditionally, and that's at relatively low rates. I mean, yeah. historically low rates. Yeah, it's the same for somebody who's doing rental housing. If you need money to buy the rental unit or to fix it up, you have to borrow that from a bank. In that case, more like five to seven percent, depending <laughs> on your reputation <laughs> you know, and uh, credit worthiness. Um, and so then, the cost of that money, you have to get back in the rent. So if you can find a way to reduce the cost of money, whether it's for home ownership or rental, you go a long way towards reducing that gap. And the way a housing bond does that is that right now, municipal bonds, last I looked, was like 1.7%. They haven't been over 2% in a long time. So you've now cut in half, like the best rate that, a home, that the best homeowner could get for a mortgage. So the cost to the community of that money is only 1.7% instead of four to seven. So you now have a huge tool for turning that money around and say, even if you only treated it as a revolving fund that would never lose any money, and I'm not necessarily advocating for that, there's also a time for pure grants to make housing work. But if you it's easier in some ways to look at it that way as a revolving fund. You could eliminate the entire cost of money 
for that 1.7% subsidy that the taxpayers would pay on a bond over the 20 years of the bond. Or you can get most of the way there by having the people who borrow money from the trust fund pay that 1.7% so that really it's truly uh, rotating and never losing value. And it just, like I said, it just sort of, you know, I always knew it was a part of it. It was only recently that I really realized that it can be a complete solution to the difference between affordability and non-affordability is, is just that cost of money. And bonds get you most of the way there. That's why I'm a big fan. Last year, the city and county established a permanent Wilmington New Hanover County Workforce Housing Advisory Committee. Members serve a three-year term, and local leaders authorize $100,000 for a workforce housing study and a public opinion survey and an awareness campaign. Committee members were appointed by the Realtors Association, business and education community, the development community, and the nonprofit community. Patrick Bryan, the Cape Fear Collective CEO, is a member of this committee. I think this is becoming an issue that I think is, is, is more than just you know, talk. I, I feel like it's, it's starting to become, I hear it a lot now in, in all different rooms. I mean, I think Good. it's become this, this front, front burner issue all of a sudden. Um, so we'll see. And I think your committee is driving some of this conversation as you guys yeah. try to figure this thing out. Well, and, and to be fair, the existence of the committee is the result of the city council and the county commissioners mm-hmm. getting serious about this. Yeah, right. that, that's why we're there and why they're allowing us to drive the conversation and encouraging us you know, to drive the conversation. So, I mean, I am more hopeful than I have been in my 15 years you know, in this community that you know, we can take some real concrete steps. There's a willingness, uh, and some of that comes from Hurricane Florence. Like I said, it really exposed. You yeah. know, it's, we're always more sympathetic to problems that we have some connection to. Mm-hmm. and. Almost all of us knew somebody who was impacted by Florence, whose housing specifically was impacted by Florence. So suddenly it's not those people, you know, well, why don't they just get, go to school and get better training and get a better job if they can't afford right. a nice house? I shouldn't put the, but I can't resist. There are people who think that way. Uh, but a lot of that thinking has gone away when they saw that people who had college educations, who did everything right, um, and then the insurance company said, well, here's all you're going to get. Um, and it maybe wasn't enough to fix the house properly. Um, or maybe they learned, you know what, your FEMA's not going to give you any money you know, unless you leave, because you can't build there again. Anyway, a lot, in a lot of ways, people learned how fragile our housing is. Uh, in this community, and they also learned how much we need the people who are having the hardest time affording their housing yep. after the hurricane. Those were the people di- literally, in some cases, digging us out yep. from the storm. And fixing the houses that they and people fixing live in. the so, houses, I mean, yeah. I, I, do think, I do think the storm has pushed housing to, it, to the forefront. I think, I, you know, I think you're right. It has become an issue that I think both the city and the county are tackling. So yeah. I think we're, we're making steps as a community to solve it. And, Obviously, in the fall, I'm looking forward to hearing the, what the result of this RFP and see what you guys come up with. Yeah, no, it's the, I'm I'm really interested too because that's you know obviously we'll have a lot more success selling evidence-based 
solutions. And, you know, and that's, and, and we have, like I said, just for a long time, it's just been, we got to do something. Right. I can't wait to get to the point, and I think we're very close to, we've got to do A, B, and C, and we got to do it now. Finally, we're talking to Katrina Redmond. She's the CEO of the Women's and Housing Authority. So we're here with uh, Katrina Redmond, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Women's and Housing Authority. We're at the uh, Downtown Library, of all places, just to, uh, you know, so people have a sense of where we are. Um, so thank you for taking a moment to talk. I know you're very busy. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Let's start in the, from the beginning. I, I think people understand what the Women's and Housing Authority is in theory. But why don't you give us a state? What's the state of the Women's and Housing Authority? And, and you know, what, what is what what is it? How does it fit in sort of our bigger community? Well, housing authorities were started back in 1937 in order to remove blight and to help with stimulate economic development. That was the main purpose, because back then we had a lot of substandard housing in the middle of cities with no indoor plumbing, et cetera. And so it was really started to help cities with that plight. If they saw a need, they could charter a housing authority, then it could receive federal assistance. And so we have been operating here since 1938 in the city of Wilmington. We were the first housing authority established in the state of North Carolina. So we have been providing uh, public housing. Mm -hmm. And then when the Housing Choice Voucher Program came along, we administered that program. But we are here uh, now, we have evolved to where we are a business. We're expected to run our properties um, more in a market mode. Is it a viable property? Is it not a viable property? And but it's very difficult to call it a viable property when you get two hundred and twenty-five dollars on average of subsidy a month, right. and if a tenant pays a rent, it comes off the top. Right. Uh, when most of our apartments here are renting anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a month, so we do provide housing where we own hard units, mm -hmm. and then the housing authority also has the program, which is the housing choice voucher program, and the housing choice voucher program actually is a tri-party agreement with a private landlord, the housing authority, and the participant in the program. And it provides low to moderate income families a subsidy through a check written to the landlord. They pay their 30% of income into the landlord every month, and the difference is made up by the housing authority. Okay. How many fixed units do you guys administer? Well, we have about 1,300 fixed units, mm -hmm. but not all of those are public housing. Okay. Um, at, over time, this housing authority has grown, and we have added to our inventory tax credit unsubsidized units to our inventory in the redevelopment of the Robert Taylor Homes. Mm -hmm. uh, that is our biggest hard units that we own at this point that are non-subsidized. They do have an affordable rent, because under the tax credit program, you actually receive money to lower the construction cost or to help with the construction right. cost so you can afford to charge a lower rent. Um, what's, what do you think is your mission? Like when you guys come to work, when you come to work and think, all right, well, our, my job today or our mission today is what? Our mission today is two things. And uh -huh. it's really drastically changed in the last year with the uh, Board of Commissioners sitting down and taking a strong look at what our role should be in Southeast North Carolina. We are here to make sure that there is housing 
for low to moderate income families. And how we do that has drastically changed. We need to be not only owning units and providing rent subsidies, we need to help other individuals, developers, be able to put affordable housing units on the ground. 100% uh, affordable? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. So we're looking to be the catalyst and the facilitator of more affordable units in the community. Now, there is a lot of question about what does the word affordable mean? Well, that's what I was to get to. I mean, it, it depends on the eye of the beholder. Sometimes it depends on who, who you're talking to. That is true. Um, the definition is usually based um, in HUD, D.C., and your housing is not supposed to cost more than 30% of your income. Now, we are supposedly helping individuals who have a zero income to 80% of the AMI, the area median income, that's determined on a yearly basis. Right. That is mainly our market. However, how we do that may need to change. Uh, my definition, and the Housing Authority Board is in support of this definition, although we have to stay within our parameters for the HUD side of things. Right. What we really are looking at is what are the incomes that we have in our jurisdiction? And is there housing to fit those income levels at 30% of their income. Okay. Public housing takes care, normally our average salary is about $14,000 in our public housing program, but we have families that work three jobs. They're barely right. home because they're working three jobs. Yeah. But then the housing choice voucher, that income can be anywhere from zero, but it tends to be a little bit higher income in the housing choice voucher right. program. Tell me about the housing uh, voucher program because I, I feel like uh, that's a misunderstood program. I think people get the you know the, the, the communities, but the housing voucher program is kind of innovative. It very much so. The housing choice voucher program, commonly known as Section Eight, allows a participant to choose any housing that meets the requirements of the program and is not limited to units located in subsidized housing projects. In general, the family's income may not exceed 50% of the median income for the county. Since the demand for housing often exceeds the limited resources, long wait times are common. It came out of the desire to have mobility. Maybe you need to be closer to the school. Maybe you need to be closer to your job. Maybe you need to be closer to family. Maybe I need to be in Nebraska. Okay, rather than North Carolina. Maybe that suits my family's needs more. And when, when housing authorities were established, there was only this thing called public housing where we owned the hard units. They sat on certain sites. And if you wanted assistance, then you had to live in those sites. However, the Housing Choice Voucher Program allows you to take your certificate, your voucher certificate, and go to a landlord and say, I like to live here. It meets my needs. Will you accept my voucher? There are strings uh, attached in that the housing choice voucher, there is an inspection. They do have to have their income re-looked at every year to see if their participation in the rent amount needs to go up or down based on their income. And then we make up the difference and we sign a, a, a lease or they sign a lease with the landlord and we sign a 
housing assistant payment contract with the landlord. And so as long as they stay in good standing with the landlord, the landlord keeps the property up, they obey the rules and regulations of the program that are set in D.C., then it's a very smooth transition. A lot of people think that um, our residents are folks that do not work, and that is one of the big fallacies, not only in public housing, but the Housing Choice Voucher Program, and that is not true. A lot of people that are served by the Housing Choice Voucher Program, it could have been a death in the family, and their major income earner is gone. It could be that there was a divorce, and there aren't the incomes. Many households take two incomes to be able to survive, period. Both my parents worked my entire life because they had to work in order to foot the bills. So when you lose half of your income or all of your income, then you may have a need till you can get on your feet. Now, once you reach the point where you have uh, 80% of area median income, you automatically go off the program. But as your income goes up, your rent goes up, and then our participation goes down in hopes that you will find a home somewhere else. But we have been that safety net for your family to keep you from homelessness. That's, a, that's interesting, too. And it also uh, it spreads out so there's not massive concentrations of, of poverty. It allows, you know, this mixed... Mixed income, mixed living. Idea. It does. Housing Choice Voucher does not have a limitation. Our jurisdiction for public housing, for us to have hard units for 10 miles outside the city limits of Wilmington, not to encroach upon another city, county, or village, or county, unless invited in. But there are opportunities where housing authorities cross that jurisdiction all the time because there is a need. And it just takes agreement between the, the, the other county and the city or another city in the city of Wilmington in order to do that because pe- people need housing everywhere. Well, I mean, that, that's a major issue here for us. I mean, it's affordable housing, I think, is a national problem, but specifically here, what, do, what are you seeing market-wise, and, and how do you think you guys are addressing it? Well, there is a big gap. We have only so many hard units of public housing. Mm-hmm. And in order to leave public housing, there is a large gap. And this is, this is true for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, too, in all honesty. The more that you make gets you closer to needing to be out of the safety net housing. But as your income goes up, you also lose other benefits, mm-hmm. uh, your food stamps, all the other, uh, your daycare contribution, all of those trickle down at the same rates that the housing assistance does. So the loss in the combination of housing cost and benefit and the other benefits a family receives creates sometimes a general loss to the family as a whole that they cannot afford. And the hope is that once you reach a certain percentage of area median income, you can exit to the private market. And the other problem we have is not only the loss of benefits, so the total decrease in the income, which makes it harder to get a marketplace. We don't have that middle-of-the-road units in mm. our area. Yeah, it's and, either and have or have not. We, Yeah, it is have or have not. And this is a problem all across the United States. This is not unique to Wilmington, North Carolina, New Hanover County, North Carolina. 
uh, or North Carolina, period. This is a nationwide issue. It's a nationwide housing trend. And that's what we need to address. And a lot of things come when you start thinking about doing things differently. I come from commercial real estate development. Right. I look at things somewhat from a shopping center. You get your anchor tenant. Okay, no offense, but your big boxes, they get you your loan to start your shopping center. 99-year lease, you know, they used to have those, and, you know, the bank would really back you for that to start your financing. You know, they may stay 99 years or they don't. Now, come on, be real. But it is your credit tenant, Mm -hmm. okay? They pay the lowest square foot in rent uh, of your whole shopping center or for an office building for that matter. Then you fill that in with regional stores who pay a little more rent per square foot. There's a little more risk with them, but you've got to get your income up. And then you have the mom and pop operations. They tend to turn over more. They're the highest risk. Is their business going to make it? Is it not going to make it? Now, these are general rules, mind you. Uh, But they pay the highest per square foot rent because they are the more risk to your shopping center stability. Uh, They also keep, the good thing about those is they keep your shopping center fresh. There's always something new going on. So it's not a bad thing. And sometimes it's a jumping ground. Mom and pop makes it better. They need more space. You don't have it. They are able to grow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you look at that. And it's the combination of those rents and the different leasing schedules that make the shopping center work as a whole. Sometimes I think we need to stop and say, can we apply this to the housing market? Either through mixed income housing Mm -hmm. or mixed income and mixed use. Maybe I need some commercial. We talk about walkable communities. One of the reasons we talk about uh, walkable communities you have me here talking with you about housing today, right? but that's not all the cost that makes life work. Right. There are transportation costs. Mm-hmm. There's medical costs. There's education costs. There are clothes on your back. Okay, let's talk about what am I going to wear today? Right. Okay? So life has a, is expensive to live a life, mm-hmm. period. So... When you take that into account, housing is merely one factor. Now, what happens when housing costs escalate is that there's less money for education. There's less money for medicine. We have seen people have to choose between $50 minimum rent and getting their medical, the medicine they needed to operate. The medicine was going to help this individual get a promotion. Without it, the company could not give her a promotion because she would collapse at work. With the medication, she was perfectly stable. She couldn't take the promotion because she couldn't figure out how to pay the medicine and her rent. But she needed a stable home in order to also have this job. There are a lot of predicaments that we cannot imagine. Some of the families we serve are some of the most resourceful individuals you will ever find. You talk about take a dollar and make it into a hundred, they can't. It's funny you say that because I've said this a hundred times. I think the community, the folks who live in your communities that I've met have have two things. They're resilient as hell. And they are resourceful. And and I feel like we as a community overlook the value 
of these communities. And if we could find a way to tap into that, I think you'd have what you're, what you're after, this, this, a real vibrant community. Because I think people strive by them and they don't, they don't see, they'll drive by Creekwood, they'll drive by Houston Morning, they don't see, they just see buildings. The community's there, and it's a real community full of people that are helping each other, but also, like you said, are resilient and they're, and they're entrepreneurial. And they truly do help each other. Mm -hmm. uh, one doesn't have something, the other one will step up. It's almost going back to the old Main Street environment. Yeah. Uh, I hate to pick on my grandmother, she may come back to haunt me for this, <laughs> but she lived next to the doctor in town, okay, who lived next door to the right. uh, businessman in town. She had a, a wood stove, finally was able to get a gas range. She had a roller washer, and she was so grateful for it because that was a step up from the washboard. Mm -hmm. She had indoor plumbing, and she had electricity for the first time in her life. She was really excited. But she grew the garden that the fresh vegetables went to everybody else. She paid her meager rent. She had to have federal subsidy, but she made it work, and people saw each other as people. Not those people with that income level. We have come to the point, I feel, yeah. that we have labeled people to the point we don't see who people really are. We don't oh, understand sure. the day-to-day -day struggles. Now, I have talked about the cost of housing versus what it takes to really live with all the other things you need, like yeah. food once in a while. But what I haven't talked about is if you don't have a roof over your head or a stable roof over your mm -hmm. head, in other words, a rent that you can afford on a long-term basis, right. what does education matter for you? What does education matter for your children? What does health care really mean? If your thoughts are every day, how do I keep a roof over my head so I have a place to lie down and sleep safely every night? What else am I going to be interested in? Nothing. That is the destruction of the American dream. And the American dream for me is not only the American dream for me, uh, and I'll, we'll take this outside the housing authority, but it, it's the principles I want to mm -hmm. run this housing authority by, is living to the, the best life, reaching the maximum potential that you designed me. And we have great success stories, nationwide great success stories. The people who come through, use that safety net, and are able to leave. And there, I would love to be out of business. Right. I, I mean, would like for no one to need it. But it's going to take a change in attitude. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a change in um, where we stop labeling people by area median income or public housing resident, or housing choice voucher participant. We need to get back to the day where Jane and John know each other as Jane and John. And in some ways, mixed income housing gets us there. That's going to take resources. And I know that the last couple of budgets have not been kind to the to HUD. How are you dealing with, with uh, you know, cuts in resources and fewer and fewer resources to actually enact some of these plans? HUD's fiscal 2021 budget slashes $8.6 billion, or 15% of current funding. The cuts eliminate all HUD funding for capital projects, 
and 10% of funding for operating budgets. It also trims the housing choice voucher by $5 billion. The cuts eliminate programs like the National Housing Trust Fund, home investment partnerships, community development block grants, and choice neighborhoods. The problem is we are now on our own to find our own money. And building the Dawson lofts at the corner of 10th and Dawson, mm -hmm. this is the last 24 units of public housing that I will ever be able to build with federal funds. They are not giving us development dollars. They're actually changing our rent structure. They want us to exit public housing and put them on a different platform. And we can, but some of those other rental platforms do not pay us any more than we're getting now. And so we still can't take that money and do community transformations or community redevelopment or building of new units, which we desperately need to do. We have the oldest inventory. Mm -hmm. I would say in the state of North Carolina, not just because we're the oldest housing authority, it's because when public housing was started, the government either had military housing, we had shipbuilding housing, they had some other housing that was sort of no longer needed. And it was said, oh, we the federal government will buy that and we will transfer that to the housing authority. The housing authority owes us this debt back on purchase and what we will do is we will make that the public housing units. Now, over time, they did forgive some of, of that debt, uh, but the housing authority, public housing worked differently back then. They had those units, put families in it, they totaled up the cost, and they said, okay, everybody's rent's going up by $50 this year, $100 next year. There were people were becoming cost burden again. Okay, and you had to have a job, you had to have a means to pay your rent. There were no subsidies at all until the 1960s. Then it capped how much you would pay out of your income, which was 30%. I think a good move. And then they gave housing authorities a subsidy to help run those. And then over time, those subsidies have eroded. There is such a backlog and has been for longer than I've been in this business, a backlog of capital needs for all of the sites. So sometimes you're putting a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid. It is not what you want to do. I love bulldozers, okay? <laughs> and some of our inventory really deserves a bulldozer. Right. And it is that, can I keep that unit viable and for how long until I can find a solution for them to have somewhere else to go. It's going to take private-public partnerships. It's going to be taking things on our own. It's going to be banks stepping up and go, okay, maybe we can do something other than a mortgage with a 10-year balloon, mm -hmm. okay? So we need to start holistically. And if we start looking people as people and we start looking at mixed income development, what we end up doing is the bank is like, oh, you can afford to repay this loan. Oh, well, let us tweak the terms. Right. Okay. Because there's not going to be grants money for mm -hmm. this. We hope eventually that there will be. There are other mechanisms. Yes, there are housing trust funds that can be done. There are other mechanisms where adding a tax for housing. But then there comes the tough call by elected officials. If we have this pool of money, how do we divide this, po this pool of money? Right. Okay. Does the housing authority get any? 
of this money. That's the okay? tough There's no guarantee at yeah. all. But we need to change our model. We need to change what we do. And we need to remove the stigma. But we need help from the community and the citizens at large to say, okay, we're stop labeling. We want to know what the truth is about people that are in the safety net program rather than what we thought we heard or what we thought we understood. Let's get down to the bottom and let's really talk about human beings. Right. Let's talk about families that have the same desires that you have in your family. Oh yeah, and you see it by going to those communities and, and, and being in the community and learning about the people there. I think it's, you know, that, that bridge is an important bridge. Final kind of final question here. Uh, looking forward five years or so, where, where do you think you are now? Because I, I do think you're driving us towards these mixed-use um, communities. I think that's where you're headed with the public-private partnerships. But where, where you tell us, like, what's your vision for five years for the Wilton Housing Authority? Five years um, in this quasi-governmental world is a much shorter time period. Having worked in private industry where mm -hmm. I can make a decision and make a move. Right. Um, it's more like two and a half, maybe two years in private industry to make that move with all the red tape, uh, permissions, all of the things that we have to go through. Because remember, those properties are tied up with the federal government. Right. But right now there seems to be some incentive and some help in helping us to reposition that. But it's going to be how welcoming is the community to redevelopment? How welcome are the financial institutions going to do this? And frankly, the Housing Authority wants to get away from a concentration of poverty. I'd like to see no more than 20% of any, because I'm tied by state law by 20% right. of there to be low income, low to moderate income units in a development because it needs to pencil. I'm a business just like everybody else. The housing authority needs to have a return on investment because I, I don't have a shareholder to pay. I don't have an owner that, that that's his living and needs to pay. I do have staff to pay, Right. okay? I do have my pilot, which is a type of property tax to pay. But what I wanna do is take that money and place it into the next development. So once we are very successful in building those first couple of two developments, then what we can do is use those as seed money for the next development. We do that by we want to issue more bonds. We want to help the private sector to do some assistance um, in the affordable market. And like I said, affordable is a really tough word for me, but housing that fits the incomes of the people that live. So what I hope we have is a very strategic plan for a couple of our oldest developments. I hope we start putting together money, getting input from the residents as to what they would like to see. Do they want to stay there? Would they rather go somewhere else? Um, if we have an opportunity with certain vouchers in, out of Washington, if we can tap into those, would you rather have a voucher and go live wherever you wish to live? Uh, you can port here uh, out of our city. We have people porting to Wilmington 
all the time because they want to live here. They have family or they're coming back to where they, they grew up. So it's that fluidity that I want us to see. But no one should feel like they're trapped in their neighborhood. And by and large, those neighborhoods are very tight. They look out for each other. That's why we have some of the lowest crime rates mm -hmm. anywhere in the city on the public housing sites. Yeah. There again, everybody thinks we're the highest in crime and we're the lowest in crime. Okay, because we are a tight-knit community. So that's what I hope to do is I'd like to see us have the development plans. I'd like to see a bulldozer or two, mm -hmm. okay? Because we can do better. We have to do better than what we've done in the past. Can I nail you to hard units? No, but if somebody wants to walk in my door with a lot of money and say, Katrina, here's the strings attached, I'm all ears. For more information, visit us on capefearcollective.org and follow the movement on social media. Don't forget to subscribe wherever podcasts are available.